this message inspires and encourages you. For more information, please contact Nexus Church. We say that we're a joke without the resurrection. Paul would turn it into a theological statement because it's Paul. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. You of all people should be most pitied. I just like to say you're a big joke without the resurrection. We are. Because in the resurrection, everything Jesus said about himself is true. And it means that once and for all, he has dealt with our, la- our biggest enemies, death, sin, the grave, and the devil. And once all of those have been dealt with, Paul would say this, Where, O oh death, is your sting? Where, O oh death, is your victory? It has been swallowed up by the resurrection of Christ, who gives us victory in all things. I love it. Paul would go further and begin to use theological terms when he describes the work of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. The first word he would begin to use would be that the Holy Spirit is then poured out as a down payment. Arabon is the Greek rendering of that word, and it means a down payment. So we've received a down payment, a deposit of the Holy Spirit, which you all know how deposits work if you ever lay by anything. I don't know if anyone lay bys anymore, but I remember doing that for getting my Sega Mega Drive games. I used to have to lay by them as a kid. And you know what it is? You put a certain amount down knowing that there'll be payment in full later on. The resurrected Jesus gives us a down payment of the Holy Spirit, which constantly reminds you there is more to come. That means something really important. This life is not all there is. And you know this. And the reason why you know this is because it's not just wishful thinking. It is actually a deposit of the Holy Spirit that there will be more to come in its complete fullness. Christians are not just wishful thinkers. The other word that Paul uses is abrache, which actually means first fruits. Jesus is the first fruit or, yeah, first fruit. And there'll be many more fruits. Hmm, it's pretty deep. There'll be many more fruits to come. What does that mean? What is true of the resurrection of Jesus will be true of all the people that belong to him. As Jesus is raised to newness of life, so you will be raised to newness of life and is the hope and the power of the resurrection that changes everything about Christian hope because we're not just looking for a disembodied heaven. No, that is part of the journey, but there is a resurrected, brand new, new creation, heaven on earth. When the earth is full of the glory of the Lord, that is the ultimate Christian hope. The resurrection of Jesus reminds us of that fact. And as I mentioned on Good Friday, there are three gardens that every Christian needs to be familiar with. Firstly, the Garden of Eden, where man turned away from God and we chose our own God. We chose to be our own gods and actually we call it sin, but essentially it's turning to ourselves. The Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane, the olive press, where Jesus made a decision to go all the way to the cross. And in that moment, like the olive press, what poured out was his tears for you and I. But the moment of Gethsemane actually sets up the final garden, the Golgotha garden tomb, where Jesus not only died on that brutal cross, he rose again in resurrection power and glory. And today, that's why we're standing here. All four Gospels pick up on uh, one important detail that they all hold, there's variation in the story which actually adds more layers and context to it, which makes it phenomenal. But every one of them talk about the stone being rolled away. Mark does it particularly well, in my opinion, because Mark has the three women on their way to the tomb. And I love this. You know, they make a decision to walk to the tomb. There was one Mary there, which I've got to tell you is always confusing. There's about nine Marys in the New Testament. I wish I could pick a different name. This is Mary number three, I think it is. And they're all on the way to the tomb. And actually they say to themselves, who will remove the stone? I like that. 
they have this conversation saying, who's going to remove the stone? But even though they don't know who's going to remove it, they still go to the tomb. Can I tell you, part of being a believer is walking towards what we're uncertain about, knowing that Jesus will make a way. Sometimes you just got to start taking a few steps and go, I don't know how that obstacle is going to get removed, but I reckon God can do something about it. Maybe you need to step towards something today. Step towards Jesus and he'll do the heavy lifting. I love that because they, they get there in all four accounts in the Gospels. The stone is completely rolled away. It's amazing that detail because you need to understand something. The stone was not removed so that Jesus could get out. Come on. He just rose from the dead. He's not in the tomb going, I'm good at rising from the dead, but how am I going to get rid of this stone? He can remove the stone. The stone was not removed to get Jesus out of the tomb. The stone was removed to get us into the tomb, to give us access. And this is why this is hugely important. This is why every author picks up on this stone because every obstacle that stood in the way of you and a relationship with your Father in heaven has been totally removed. So if you're sitting here today and you're saying, I'm not a church person, I'm not a religious person, I've got a past, I've got a story, I don't always get it right. Me too, but the stone is being removed. That means we have open access to our Father in heaven. And I want to encourage us today that we can step towards that empty tomb. We can step towards relationship with our Father in heaven because of the resurrection of Jesus, because the stone was totally removed. It's interesting to me that while Jesus talked on a regular basis that he will die and rise again, nobody expected it. In fact, I'd go as far as to say that no one expected it. The only people that did were the Romans. The Romans put some soldiers there at least. Nobody else was expecting this. The women were walking there expecting to embalm a body. One preacher says it better than I can. He says, nobody was expecting nobody. I just wish I had one of those lines. I'd turn it into a T-shirt. Nobody was expecting nobody. It tells us something else very important that we can always be around Jesus and never hear what he's saying. He said it a lot. Nobody was expecting it. So this morning, I want to read the resurrection account in John chapter 20. I want to do something that I never do. And uh, I'm going to read an entire chapter of scripture. And we're going to stop along the way and look at some of the cultural context. But we will all be okay. I will only preach for an hour or so. Just enough time for you to get home and, and turn the lamb roast over or whatever it is you've got cooking away on your Weber barbecue. John chapter 20, verse 1, reading from the NIV version. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple the one Jesus loved. It is important to note that this is John writing this and John refers to himself as the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. John is reminding everybody that he is the one Jesus loves. Everybody else are just pretenders. But I am the other disciple, the one that Jesus loves. It gets better. And so they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. The other disciple is John, the one Jesus loves, who is writing this. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. 
Let all of human history know that I, John, the one who Jesus loves, is faster than Pete. (laughs) He makes it a profound point that he is faster than old John, than Peter and the other guy. Ah, man, I wanted to nail that joke. (laughs) Both running, outran him. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, being Simon Peter, who does things first and thinks about it later. How many can relate to Peter? He came along behind him and he went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first. (laughs) Just so you know. He also went inside. He saw and believed. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over, looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Mary, with the stone removed, peers in an angel at the head and at the foot. There is only one other scene that this is painting. There's only one other moment that we know of, and that is the mercy seat of God, the Ark of the Covenant with the two angels, the Holy of Holies. Only certain people had access to it. And what John is wanting you to see there is there is now two angels and there is now unlimited access to the presence of the living God. He wants you to see this brand new relationship that is available to Mary. Woman, why are you crying? They've taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. And at this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? I like this. He's just playing. Thinking he was the gardener, she said. Now, what's happening here? Jesus is likely doing some gardening. It's interesting. Jesus is kind of pulling out a few weeds here and there, trimming back the hedges in the garden tombs. What is happening in this story? Jesus is once more mistaken for the gardener. John wants us to see the imagery here. It is the brand new first day of the week. And at the first day of the week, new beginnings, new creation is starting. And guess what? If you didn't pick up on it already, we are back in a garden. But it's a different garden. It's a recreation of the Garden of Eden. And humanity's story is beginning all over again. The resurrection of life. And resurrection power. She asked him, can I go and get him? Where have you put him? Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I've not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Do you know what's so fascinating here is very rarely, only one other time does Jesus refer to his disciples as brothers. You know what Jesus could have said? Go and tell my betrayers. Go and tell my abandoners. Go and tell Peter, the disowner. I'll see him soon. Don't do that. Calls them brothers. You know what I love about this? When we fail him, he still calls us brother and sister. When we don't get it right, he says, you're still my brother, you're still my sister, I still love you. When we fail him and abandon him and betray him, he still says, go and find my brothers and my sisters. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord, and she told them, he said these things to her. 
on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. I want to tell you this, if you have a habit of walking through locked doors, make sure you always lead with peace be with you, because it will scare people. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That same Holy Spirit that has been present in our praise and worship this morning. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked once again, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. What strikes me is the gentleness of Jesus. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There are seven resurrection encounters that are recorded in the four Gospels, but Paul would take it a step further. He said that Jesus in his resurrected body appeared to the 12, to Peter, to the 500 at one time. Then he appeared to him, Paul, who he calls himself as one abnormally born. And we see what happens with Jesus' resurrected body is that he is actually giving gifts to his people. Everything about the Christian faith is received, it is not achieved. Everything is about receiving what Jesus has done in our lives. And it's amazing to me, in this scene, the resurrected Jesus is giving of himself to his disciples. I would like to suggest to you that perhaps we've got it wrong. Maybe at Easter time, we should be giving out presents, and at Christmas time, we should be doing eggs. I just thought of that out loud, that doesn't work. Maybe, maybe presents both times. Maybe you can start with just giving me presents at Easter and then I'll let you know how that goes. Jesus is giving of himself. You notice what he's doing. He's restoring relationship. He's giving the gift of peace. He's giving the gift of himself. He's giving the Holy Spirit. He's giving forgiveness and restoration and he's causing overflowing joy. Can I tell you at Easter time, the power of the resurrection is that Jesus actually wants to give you something and that is himself in resurrection power and glory by his presence called the Holy Spirit. Jesus has something for you today. And the power of the resurrection is a reminder that Jesus is continually and constantly giving and pouring out to his people. I want to make three observations and application of this passage and then we'll, we'll close. I want us to pick up on the first one. The resurrection deals with the locked doors of our fears. The resurrection deals with the locked doors of our fears. What you notice in this passage is that despite Simon, Peter, and despite John understanding who Jesus is and encountering in some sense, who he already is, they still continually lock the doors out of fear. 
They still lived in a place of fear. And we understand this from Scripture. The number one command that outranks any other command in the entire Bible is this. Do not fear. What you see in this moment with the doors locked because of fear, huddled together because of what could happen, Jesus comes and stands in the middle of their fears and says this, peace be with you and receive the Holy Spirit. What does this mean for you and I? The power of the resurrection means that you and I can finally, once and for all, ultimately be delivered from our greatest fears. I can tell you what the greatest fear that all humans face. It's not subtle. It's not COVID. It's not Melbourne Storm. The greatest enemy that we have is death, sin in the grave. And the resurrection power of Jesus reminds us that he has dealt with our ultimate enemy. That means he can deal with you trying to raise your kids. He can deal with you trying to survive in life. He can deal with you when you're worried about your business. Because Jesus stands in resurrection glory in the middle of the fears that the disciples had then, he would turn those disciples around to be the most bold and courageous people to ever walk the earth. They would all die cruel deaths, staring in the face of incredible torture and pain, and yet they knew something that happened in their lives. Why? Because of the resurrection of Jesus. So today, What this means is that Jesus comes and stands in the middle of our fears, our greatest fears, and he says this, give them to me and I'll give you my peace. Unlock the doors, I'll give you my Holy Spirit. Because Jesus deposits something that wasn't there before and he stands in the middle of our fears. It's not as if Jesus arrived on the scene and gave the disciples a great big pep talk. It wasn't just that half-time chat, come on guys, let's go for it here. No, he actually deposits something in there that was different to that what was there before. Now they're no longer in, living in fear, they're living in boldness and courage. The resurrection of Jesus says that today, he can and will, if you allow him to, deliver you from all of your fears because of his resurrection power. Tom Wright says this, if we recognize the truth about the surpassing God, the God who raises the dead, we can trust him with every lesser task that may come our way. That's why, though we may at any stage in our lives grasp the truth that God raised Jesus from the dead, it takes us all of our lives to let that belief soak through and permeate the rest of our thinking, feeling, and worrying lives. That is why Paul can say we've endured hardship, shipwreck, all kinds of torment, but at the end of the day, Jesus is victorious. Let me ask you this question. What is it that you're facing today that you know it's a real fear in your life and you need to invite the resurrected Jesus, his presence, to come and fill you with his peace and Holy Spirit to deliver you from fear because that is the plan of God, that humanity would live free from fear. Whatever it is you're facing today, he can handle it. If he can handle sin, death and the grave, he can handle you getting your life back on track. Let me give you a silly illustration. I would trust a brain surgeon to put a band-aid on my scraped knee, as long as they're gentle. Think about it. Jesus has dealt with our biggest enemies. Why can he not deal with your fears that you carry? The second thing I want to draw attention to is Thomas. Thomas gets a, a bad rap in this story. I'm sure Thomas would love to defend himself right now in heaven. We call him Doubting Thomas, which is unfortunate. I'm sure he'd like to say, my first name is not Doubting. But Thomas does doubt and he puts all these conditions 
He says this, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And yet when he sees Jesus, and Jesus says, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, put it in my side, stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Thomas was doubting, but he had all of these preconditions to coming to faith. I want to say this this morning. I've never met a Christ follower who ever said to me, I had 38 doubts and 38 conditions that had to get answered and then I came to faith. The fact of the matter is, faith is not about getting your questions or doubts answered. Faith is actually coming to know Jesus and who he is and all of those things just seem to shrink in comparison. And Thomas had all of these ifs. He said, unless I can do this, I'm not going to, I can't buy into this. Do you know what? He never even does it. He literally sees Jesus and says, my Lord and my God. That tells us something very important. The resurrection of Jesus when he comes and stands in the middle of our doubts is he doesn't answer all of our questions, but he brings himself into the circumstance, into every heart. I think it works in everyday life. I've used this illustration many times before, but the fact of the matter is, Prior to getting married, you've always got a bunch of questions. Everybody does. How's it going to work? Who's going to cook the dinner? Who's going to clean up? Can I play Xbox in bed? How do you squeeze the toothpaste out of the toothpaste? You know, do you make the forks in the drawer go up or down? I don't know. We have about 42 questions. But when you fall in love, can I tell you, those questions never get answered. But compared to the love that you have, you don't even care anymore. But I have never been able to play Xbox in bed. Actually, I did play once, Guitar Hero, and it was only once. (laughs) Can I tell you, we don't always have our questions answered in faith, but it all pales in comparison to the relationship that Jesus brings. And so maybe this morning you're wrestling with a bunch of questions. The fact of the matter is, in faith, we will always have questions. That's why it's called faith. It doesn't mean leave your brain at the door. It just means compared to the resurrected Jesus, it just doesn't matter that much. Christianity never asks us to leave our brain at the door. In fact, you would have noticed in John's account, there's three seeings. Seen, no, saw, saw and believed, saw and believed. In fact, all of them are different Greek renderings of that same word. One is kind of regular seeing. One is theoreo, which means to theorize. And the other one is ado, which actually means to engage your intellect. I'm not saying that we don't engage our brains. I'm not saying that, but I am saying compared to the relationship that Jesus brings, compared to the, to the peace that he wants to bring into your heart and life, the questions just go away. So maybe this morning you have some doubts. Maybe you've got questions. Can I invite you to see the resurrected Jesus? Invite him in and let those doubts shrink down. You know, I've heard faith put this way. and I think it's quite powerful. At the end of the day, faith is almost like a windshield of a car. No one ever admires a windshield. No one this morning is walking out into the parking lot going, wow, look at the windshield on that. No one's doing that. You don't sit in your car and admire your windshield. You use your windshield to see through to the other side. Faith works exactly the same way. We don't gather together and admire people's faith. We admire Jesus. That means something really important. That means despite what is happening in your life, faith enough helps you see Jesus. I can tell you what's required. Just a mustard seed. Some days you're seeing Jesus clearly in his resurrected power and glory and you're feeling great about life. Some days you're going through a storm, but you can see enough. Some days you've got cracks in the windshield, but if you keep looking through, you can see 
Jesus. The point of the Christian faith is not to admire faith, but to admire Jesus, to see Him and to know Him. Team, you can come and join me. And the last thing. So Jesus comes and stands in the middle of our fears and resurrection glory. He wants to do that today. Jesus comes and stands in the middle of our doubts, our uncertainties. He wants to bring his peace and his presence today. But lastly, we often call Thomas doubting Thomas, but I believe there's something more to Thomas' story. I don't know if Thomas was just a doubter. I actually have a sense that perhaps Thomas was disappointed. You see, disappointments very quickly turn into doubts, and doubts very easily become fears. And I have a sense that Thomas was maybe just disappointed. Think about it. The 12 disciples all had their various understanding of what the Messiah would do, but they knew something. They knew that the Messiah would come and reign in glory and power, finally kick out the Roman rule, be free of oppression. This is what the Messiah, the King, was meant to come and do, and they all understood this. In fact, some commentators would say about Judas, kind of gracious to him, that Judas was merely trying to force the hand of Jesus, sort of back him into the corner, make him exert his full power. So Thomas is one of the 12, and I would imagine that Thomas, before Thomas was fearful, before Thomas was a doubter, I wonder if Thomas was just disappointed. Because Thomas had hitched his life to the Messiah. They'd all given up their entire existence to follow Jesus. And Thomas expected something cool to happen. And yet Jesus was arrested, put through a mock trial, beaten cruelly, carried his own cross and died a brutal death. And Thomas is seeing this and he's disappointed. Thomas is seeing this and saying, I thought that our story wouldn't end this way. I love how gracious Jesus is with Thomas. He doesn't condemn him. He doesn't tell him he's got it all wrong. He invites him to just take a closer look. See, the truth is, you might not be in a place of fear this morning, although you might be. You might not be wrestling with huge doubts, though you might be. I think the hardest part in life is disappointment. is when things don't go the way that we thought it would go. As Christians, we're never guaranteed a perfect life. But we are guaranteed a perfect Saviour who always walks with us. And I wonder if Thomas just thought, I didn't think it would end up this way. And perhaps today in this room or in Sanford and Sandgate online, Maybe you're not living in fear. Maybe you've been able to assuage some of your doubts, but maybe you're saying, I'm disappointed. I prayed for that person. They didn't get better. I thought that that marriage would be restored and it hasn't been. I thought that that risk they took would turn out well and their business would flourish and it hasn't. And what begins to settle on our hearts is disappointment. Thomas knows what it's like. And Thomas is saying what so many of us say at some point in our lives, I I just don't want to go through it again. I don't want to get my hopes up. I don't want to be in that place where I get my hopes up again. And so these are the conditions I place on my life so I don't get my hope up, so I, I remain safe and protected. And Jesus comes and stands. 
and resurrected glory in the middle of our disappointments, reminding us that this is not the end. Death does not have the final word. That he will restore everything because what is true of Jesus will be true of us. And heaven is not just a wonderful consolation prize for a terrible life now. No, there is a new heaven and a new earth and every tear will be wiped from every eye. The lion will lay down with the lamb and there will be peace and the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. So Jesus comes and stands on Resurrection Sunday in the middle of our disappointments and says, this is not the end. This life is not the end. I'll make all things new.